Good morning. Would you please turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come on this first Lord's Day of the new year, and we are so grateful that we are here under Colossians 1, 9-14, with a ready heart and a ready mind to receive from you what you want us to hear today. We are here by divine appointment, all of us. And so I pray that you, Holy Spirit, now would be our teacher. We, we need your power. I need your filling to communicate this text and what is on my heart for a people who I love and who I long to see grow into greater and greater knowledge, understanding, to become those who are transformed from one degree of glory to another. I want that for my church. I want that for my own heart. I want that for my wife, my three boys, for my daughter. Lord, I want that for our pastors, our elders, our deacons. I want it for those who counsel and use the scriptures. God, I want it for Sunday school teachers and youth ministry leaders. God, I want it for our whole church. And so I pray that today you would begin a refocused effort regarding what it means to be spiritually mature. So come now, Holy Spirit, and help us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since 2009, we've had a little bit of a tradition around here, and that tradition is that the first sermon of the new year is on prayer, and then that launches us into prayer week. And we do that because we think that prayer is important. Traditions are good as long as you know why you're doing them. If you don't really know why you have the tradition, they become rote and boring and can even become a little bit legalistic. And so I, I want to help you understand today the importance of prayer and what we're doing in order to call you to grow in this very important area. A couple things that we're doing throughout the course of this week. We have already had 24 hours of Bible reading that happened from uh, December 31st to January one. Um, some 65 or so people read the Bible right here, all the way through in the New Testament, praying in 15-minute increments. So we've already done that. Now, beginning tomorrow, we have all these prayer events. Tomorrow at 6 a.m., we have morning coffee and prayer. That's going to be in the chapel. I'll be leading that. 6 to 7, come and pray with us. Uh, Tuesday, we have a staff prayer summit from 8.30 to noon. We take the first Tuesday of every year, and our staff spends the first day of our uh, kind of work environment, just an entire morning of prayer. We'd love to have you come and join us uh, in that on Tuesday. On Wednesday, if you work or live downtown or just want to go downtown, we'd love to have you come and pray with us at uh, Christ Church Cathedral there. That really neat Gothic-looking church on the circle will be in the basement area with um, several of us who will be there praying. Then on Thursday, we're going to pray at Brookside at uh, the Oaks Academy, Brookside in the library. Friday is the Global Outreach Prayer. Typically, it's called the First Friday Prayer, so it's the First Friday Prayer on the Second Friday of January. 
January, okay? And that's at 6. And then on Saturday, we have a men's planning time at 8, and that's connected to our our prayer week, uh, and I'll explain that to you in a little bit. Additionally, we have uh, a pastoral resident, Dustin Crow, who's put together, at my request, a, uh, a, a devotional for you. He served you as a church really well, put together a great devotional. You can use this for family devotions. You can use this in your own quiet time, maybe something to do in your small groups or um, just something that with Starbucks with somebody. Take this along and say, hey, before we just get into our stuff, let's just read this together and pray. And so he's really served you well by putting this together, five different devotionals, some action points of how you could take some next steps in prayer. What I'm asking you to do is just to do one thing different next week as it relates to prayer. Attend one thing, do one devotional, um, spend one hour in prayer, do something, but, but find a way to make next week significant, or this week rather significant and different as it relates to the matter of prayer. So let me just give you some, some reasons for why we do prayer week. Again, I've said that traditions are important and they're significant as long as you know why you're doing them. And let me just give you four philosophical reasons why we are doing prayer week. The first is this, is that prayer is an important and common spiritual discipline. Prayer is an important and common discipline. In fact, I would guess that every single one in this room and everyone who will hear this message has prayed at least once in their lifetime. If you were going to hit a car, you're like, Lord, help me, right? Or you lost your keys. Lord, where are they? If you're irreligious, my guess is you've probably prayed at least once in your lifetime. If you're a follower of Jesus, my guess is you've prayed quite a bit throughout your life. What we know is that prayer is a part of what it means to be spiritual. It's a part of what it means to be a Christian. It's a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, I think all of us would acknowledge that prayer is a vital part of your relationship with God. The second thing is this, is that prayer is often difficult and neglected. Prayer is difficult and often neglected. Over the holidays, I was reading a book by, uh, about Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, one of my heroes. who's the pastor of the Westminster Chapel in London, England for many, many years. He said this on prayer. If you have never had difficulty in prayer, it is absolutely certain that you have never prayed. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. This spoken by a man who at his death, his wife was asked, I'm sure that you missed the great doctor's preaching. And she said, no. It's a good thing she didn't stop there. (laughs) She said, I miss his praying. It's a man who knew prayer. And yet he says that if you've never had difficulty in prayer, it is absolutely certain that you have never prayed. And I would agree with his assessment. Prayer is difficult. And as well, you've heard me probably quote this many times, I'll say it again, that prayer is the most talked about but the least practiced discipline in the church. To be candid, if we had a, if I said to you to, that tonight we're going to have an in-depth study of the book of Revelation at 6 o'clock, you know what would happen? This place would be packed out. But let's be honest. If I said we're calling for a special prayer meeting at 6 o'clock, we're just going to come and pray, we'd be lucky, lucky to have 10% of our congregation here on a Sunday evening. That's just the way the church is. And I think it's a, a bit of an indictment that we, we know prayer is important, but it is often difficult and neglected. Third, this prayer and growth in prayer is always needed. Seriously, there's nobody in this room who could look at t- 2012 and say, yeah, I prayed enough in 2012. Really? You prayed enough? You prayed enough? 
Growth in prayer is always needed. And the reason is, is that because prayer is connected to God and because knowledge of God is inexhaustible, think of this, that for all of eternity we'll be learning and studying and enjoying and loving on God and we'll never for all of eternity run out of things to know and love Him about or in. And since prayer is connected to this inexhaustible God, prayer is an inexhaustible discipline. You can always grow in prayer. And then fourth, power, power and spiritual growth are linked to prayer. College Park, listen to me please very carefully and hear my heart on this. A careful reading of the New Testament would demonstrate that God is moved to act when His people pray. And when they don't pray, He chooses not to move. And here's He'll move in some ways, but there are things that God wants to do in your life, in my life, and the life of our church that He will not do unless we pray. And here's why. Because He knows that if He gives those things to us, it will simply create more self-sufficiency. And God's end game is to make us more and more dependent on Him. And so He won't move, He won't do things until we pray. In fact, He puts things in our life by design to make us pray. Why? Because His ultimate aim is for us to grow in our understanding of Him, not just to have happy, easy um, lives that are never troubled or difficult. So the idea that There are things that God wants to do in our lives requires that we pray. And what we find in the Bible is that the Holy Spirit cooperates in our praying in order to accomplish His work. And so where there is no prayer, there is no power. And we need to hear this in the midst of 20th century American Christianity. I mean, think about it. We have all of the trappings of success. We have more literature, more uh, programs, better facilities, incredible resources, innovative strategies. But without the Holy Spirit empowering these activities, we'll just be busy and we won't end up being godly. We'll just be active and have our calendars calendars filled with things, but we won't actually grow and become more like Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit's power on our church in 2013. You need the Holy Spirit's power on your life. You need the Holy Spirit's power in your family, in your small group. And so therefore, there are things that we need to pray about. Thursday night, I came late to the office, late at night. I'd forgotten my computer and had to come back and get it. As I came back through the atrium, I heard music that was going on here. Our uh, Eric's worship arts team was getting ready for Sunday, and so I just popped in for a moment, stood in the back, and they wrapped up their their musical rehearsal. And the guys in the tech ministry and the folks that led you in worship this morning, you know what they did? They all gathered and they prayed for one another and they prayed for you. They prayed for the service. And I was just, my heart was so grateful for a worship arts and a tech serve department that prays because you know why? We can have the finest musicians in all of the world. We can have the greatest singers. And if there's no spiritual power, it's just music. It's just sinking. It's, it's just stuff. At the end of the day, you know, we need, we need the Spirit of God to come, and that comes as His people pray. So I need this week, and you need this week. I'm doing this week and, and going to be leading things, not just because it's the right thing for us to do as a church. I'm doing this because it's the right thing for my soul. Because my commitment to prayer leaks just like yours does. Yours does. It's so busy in the, the, the pace of life, even in doing good things, that we forget of the importance of seeking God's face. So church, we need to pray. College Park, we need to pray. Listen to me. As your pastor, I am telling you, you need to pray. What are we going to pray about? 
our theme for this week and really for this entire year and even beyond that for a couple years is going to be this idea of maturity or spiritual growth. Next Sunday, I'll unpack this um, even further about what we're thinking as elders, some things that we're talking and praying about as pastors together. I know you'll be encouraged. And it's, it revolves around Colossians 1.28, a text that I'll unpack next week that says that our goal is to present everyone mature in Christ. What I want to do today is to help us to think about praying over this subject of spiritual maturity. Praying specifically about what it means for us to really truly be passionate followers of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for you to have grown in your maturity such that people in your sphere of influence want to be like you? What does it mean for you to be so infectious with your love of Jesus that that Becoming a disciple of His is is viral around you. It's sort of like my experience was going up north over the holidays. Everyone got sick, right? I'm in a house with 40 people for three days. Bugs all over the place. Viruses. I got a flu shot. I'm good right now. My family's down, but I'm good. I got... They they were infectious. And I want you to be flu-like in your infectious ability. I want... Maybe that's not a great analogy, but you know what I mean. I want you giving people the Jesus aches and, you know, the Holy Spirit cough. And however you want to think about it, here's what I want you to do. I want you infecting other people by the very presence of you in their orbit. I want you to impact people, not just by what you say, but by the reality of who you are and how much you've grown. So we need to pray about maturity. Our text, Colossians 1 9 to 14 reflects the heart of the Apostle Paul for a group of believers in the city of Colossae. And and this particular church needed some help. The problem in the city of Colossae was that it was a very spiritual city. There was a a philosophy that had been going around the city, really around all of Asia during that time, and it dealt with sort of higher knowledge issues. There were there was a certain kind of people, and then there were these folks who had higher spiritual knowledge, and they talked about dreams and visions and, and regulations and, and had this idea that, that they were somehow more spiritual than others. And the idea was you had to get to this higher knowledge thing. And Paul comes along and reminds the church at Colossae that what's really needed is to be sure they get Jesus in the middle of their relationships, that they get Jesus in the middle of their spirituality, that they submit to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. So the whole book of Colossians is about Jesus being the core. Our text in particular today that we're looking at is a prayer that Paul prayed for them. He heard of their progress from a colleague named Epaphras. He heard some great things about them. He heard of their love for one another, heard of their their love for God, he heard about their faithfulness, and therefore he wasn't content with their present spiritual growth. He wanted them to grow even more, and so he prayed some things for them. And today I want to look at his prayer so that we can pray it as well. Let me summarize what Paul prays. This is what I think he prays. This is what I want you to pray. And I've summarized this, so hopefully this will be something memorable that you'll leave with today. It's this, Lord, I want to know you so that I can faithfully follow you even when it's hard all because of the gospel. You know what I want you praying this week, church? I want you praying this. Lord, I want to know you. 
And I want to know you so I can faithfully follow you so that even when it's hard in 2013, I won't give up and I won't quit. And I'm going to do all of this because of the gospel. I want you praying this over your kids. I want you praying this over your grandkids. I want you praying this over your friends and the people in your small groups. Anybody near you in your influence to say, Lord, we want to know you so that we can faithfully follow you. So even when it's hard, we won't quit. We won't give up all because of the gospel. So there's four things that are here in this text. I want to look at each of these statements that I've tried to summarize in a memorable way for you. Each of these tell us something about Paul's heart and also tell us something about how we ought to pray as a church. Here's the first one. Lord, I want to know you in verse 9. Paul had heard some encouraging things from Epaphras, some things about their spiritual growth and maturity, but he wanted something more for them. Look at verse 9. He says, And so from the day we heard, that references the things that Paul had heard from Epaphras about them, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, savor each of these words, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul picks up this idea of knowledge, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. This, this idea of, of um, gnosis or Gnosticism. Paul's using this, this idea that the Colossae people would have been familiar with, this knowledge piece. He then takes and uses a different Greek word. With that word gnosis in the middle of it, he uses the Greek word epigenosis in order to tell them, look, the knowledge that you're hearing about in the city of Colossae is nothing compared to this knowledge that I want you to have about God's will. So he's talking here about spiritual knowledge, a knowledge that they need to possess. He wanted them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, when you hear that little phrase, God's will, my guess is that many of us immediately think of moments when we prayed for God to show us what we ought to do. Some of you maybe prayed, Lord, am I supposed to marry this person or not? Lord, am I supposed to take this job or not? Am I supposed to move here or not? Or am I supposed to um, do this or that? So we think of God's will often in a decision-making matrix. Certainly that's a part of God's will, but that is not what Paul has in mind here. Because the idea of the word will in this context means more about that which is wished for, that which is longed for, what you desire. In other, mean, in other words, it means this. It means that you love what God loves. And that you know what he loves, so you love what he loves. It means that you desire what he desires. You cherish what he cherishes. You hate what he hates. And what Paul is saying is, Lord, I want these people to know what you love. I want them to to desire what you desire. I want them to cherish what you cherish. It's not just about the future. It means that a person loves what God loves. And notice he says that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That word means to be satisfied or to complete or to be saturated. I love that word saturated. In fact, one of my favorite definitions of revival is a people saturated with God. And what Paul is praying here is that what I would want us to pray for as a church and that we would be a people saturated with the things that God loves. That we would be 
Husbands that are saturated with the things that God loves. Wives that God is cherished in our hearts. Children who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Single adults and grandparents who love what God loves. That every one of us would be filled with this knowledge of God's love. Because it's knowledge, it involves the mind. It means that you've got to know your Bible. I hope that when you come on Sunday mornings, when you come to worship service, when you come to a Sunday school class, when you go to your small groups, that, and, and when you're reading your Bible on your own, that, that, that you are looking to understand God's Word. If you haven't ever read through the Bible in a year, let me encourage you, let, let this year be that year to do it. You can say, oh, well, I'm not a reader. And my pushback would be, well, then you're not going to be godly. Because if you don't read God's Word, you're never going to know what God's will is. And that matter, I would say you do read. You read ESPN. You read cookbooks. You read the newspaper. You read. You read stop signs. I mean, you read, right? So don't give me that. You can read. It's just a matter of what you read. So the knowledge of God's will. So there's a, there's a mind aspect to it. You've got to know your Bible. But it's not just about knowing. Spirituality, spiritual maturity is also, it's about the combination of knowing and doing. It's not just about what you do, or what you know rather, it's about how you live. It's the combination of think and do. Pick your Bible, go over to 1 Peter 4 and verse 2. Let me show you this, how Peter carries the same theme of thinking that then relates to Loving what God loves and doing what God wants us to do. First Peter 4 and verse 2. Lord, I want to know you. That's what we're focusing on now. What I, I want to know you. What does that mean? First Peter 4, 2. Peter says this. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So you're supposed to read the Bible, see what Jesus does, and think like him. And then he says this, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See it? What Peter is saying is don't live for human passions. Live for the things that God loves. Don't live for human passions. Live for the things that fit with the very heart and character of God. When I think back in 2012, some of the things that have caused me the most grief, some of the things that have made our pastors incredibly sad, the things that that occupy the time of our counselors, you know what those things are, church? Those things are human passions as opposed to doing God's will. You want to make a best of your life in 2013? Here's what you do. Just live according to everything that you want and disregard what God's will is in terms of what he loves and what he desires. You want to have a terrible marriage, have a mess in terms of your family? You want to have relationships that are completely broken and and have a life where you're absolutely alone? Here's what you do. Just live according to your own human desires and passions and disregard what God's will is and what he says how we ought to live So we need to understand this issue of spiritual maturity because it's not only linked to what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus, it's linked to what is on the very heart of God. Our prayer should be, God, we want you to fill us afresh with the Spirit. We want to bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
And so as we move into 2013, I want to call you to pray for spiritual maturity in your own life. I want you to pray, God, I want to know you more in this year than I did last year. To pray this over those within your realm of influence. To pray this over our church. To pray that we would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That our lives would fit with the very will of God. Pray this for all of us. This is something I was convicted about recently, challenged about. My wife and I were having a conversation about our two oldest sons and their future. And, you know, college isn't that far off. And so we got to start thinking about, so where are they going? And what are they going to do with their lives? What's the, what's, what's, what are they called to? What do they want to do? And you know what I found? As I'm getting into this conversation and folks are asking, hey, what are they thinking? And where do they think about going to school? There's sort of this parental thing that sort of happens. Like, I want my kids to be successful. And what schools they go to, you know, where they're going to go and, and things that they're going to do. I want to have all those things kind of answered. And, and that can create a lot of stress. And some of you parents know exactly what I'm talking about. That's sort of this, the, the new status symbol is not the car you drive, the home you're in, but where your kids go and what they do and are they successful or not. And I sat down with my wife and I said, you know what I want? I don't care if they don't make a whole lot of money. I don't care if they're in a a successful... You know what I want? I want my sons to be godly. That's what I want. I want them to follow Jesus because that's what really matters. And you know what? I needed to preach that to my own soul because you get stuck in this culture and you got to remind yourself, no, no, no. That is not the end. It's the means to another end. You can have all the money in the world, but if you're not godly, you can keep your money. You can have a seemingly low-impact job in terms of cultural influence but if you're a godly man or woman man that's the prize we gotta pray for maturity for our kids we gotta pray for maturity for us we gotta pray lord we want to know you so we can faithfully follow you even when it's hard all because of the gospel here's the second thing lord i want to know you so i can faithfully follow you the passion to know god and to know his will was meant to lead us somewhere It's meant to be practical. It's meant to help us to actually faithfully follow him. Look at verse 10. He says this, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there's there's four things that are connected here to what it means to be growing in spiritual maturity. Paul says, I'm praying that you would know the will of God. And then he explains what this would look like in terms of faithful following. The first thing he says is that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The church at Colossae would have understood this because in a nearby city, Pergamum, they, they often referred to the conduct of their citizens, and it was inscribed in certain places in their city, as those who walked in a manner worthy of their gods. The sense that the gods were watching And so Paul takes that phrase and he turns it, a phrase they would have been familiar with, and tells them, you need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Meaning that there is no compartmentalization of your life. There's no part of your life, this is my life, this is my my spiritual life, and this is my other life. There is no other life. If that's what your life is like, you got big troubles, big problems. If Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's Lord of none doesn't mean he's perfectly Lord of every area. But if you've got little pockets of your life that you're reserving just for you, that's a huge problem. We're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Then he says to be fully pleasing to him. NIV picks this up and translates it as please him in every way. 
so that every aspect of our life is pleasing to Him. I mean, just think of praying that over your life. Lord, in everything in my life, in everything, I want you to be pleased. Bearing fruit in every good work. I mean, think of all the things that you do. Think the stuff that, that you do in terms of serving other people. Just even kind words that you say. And, and what Paul is praying here is that in everything that you would do, that there would be good fruit coming out of that. I mean, isn't that what you want? You want to see effectiveness. You want to speak into the life of your children and say, you know, here's a thought for you. When you do this, that's wrong. And I'd rather have you do this because that honors the Lord. And for your kids to go, Dad, that's like the wisest thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, you want that, don't you? I, I feel broken right now. I'm going to just get on my face and repent. And uh, would, you, would you help me and give me like 55 million things to do to fulfill? I mean, that's what you want, right? You want this fruit that just comes out. We want good fruit that our words don't just fall off the end that our words land on ready and, and, and prepared hearts. Increasing in the knowledge of God is the fourth and final thing. The idea is that the knowledge of God isn't static. It grows. I mean, this is the cool thing. You know something about God, and that increases your appetite to know Him more and more and more and more. And such that when you begin to know Him, you want to know Him even in a greater, more significant way. But here's the problem. It's a reverse cycle as well. That when you don't feed that appetite, you want to know Him less and less and Less and less. And I would guess there's a significant number of you that in 2012, your, your, your heart for the Lord decreased, didn't increase. And, and, and you look back in 2012, and if, if you're honest, it was, a, it was a bit of a no-brainer from a spiritual perspective. You're not in any better place than you were a year ago. And I want to call you today to have 2013 not be like that. To say, Lord, I want to know you in 2013 so that I can faithfully follow you, so that your life would be one that fits with the beauty of what it means to know the will of God. Let me, let me just give you some examples of questions that you might ask yourself. Here's about six or seven of them. First, have you increased in your understanding and love of God over the last year? In other words, are you further along in your discipleship with God and your relationship with him than you were in 2012. Next, do I have a greater passion for Jesus and a deeper love for God? Are you more pumped up about Jesus or are you less? Third, is my prayer life more vibrant than it was a year ago? If you have a prayer life that's in the tank, don't read a book on prayer. Don't. You don't need to read another book on prayer. What you need to do is come to a prayer meeting and pray with people. That's what you need to do. Here's another one. Does God have more control of your life, particular areas of your life, than a year ago, or less control? Do you talk more frequently with others about the matters of the soul? I mean, is it a part of just kind of your personality that, that when you're talking with people, you, you bring them towards the soul? I mean, that's why you're in this world. You, you move them soul direction. Does my giving and generosity demonstrate that I have covetous in check? I mean, for some, I can imagine 2012 was a terrible year regarding giving. And 2013 can't be like that anymore. Covetousness is the prevailing idol of our day, and we have to sever it. And the way you sever it is by giving. Do I have a desire and seek opportunities to share my faith? One of the things we're going to do in this next year is talk about how to be more aggressive and more intentional, more thoughtful in how we share our faith. And the reason is is because we think, as elders and pastors, that 
when people are sharing their faith, they're, they're more concerned about their soul. They got questions that they've got to have answered. They ask people to pray for them. They're, they're, they're on that risky, thin, razor sharp edge of their faith. And we, we need to be there. For many, it's been a long time since we've shared our faith and that needs to change. One of the reasons that we're hosting this men's planning time at the end of prayer week is so that as men, we can just connect and talk a little bit about what does it mean to be intentional with our lives? What does it mean in, in order to, to, to really be strategic? There's a book I read a few years ago, a secular author, but his, his statement was this, if you ran your business like you run your family, you'd be out of business in three months. Say that again. If you ran your business like you run your family, you'd be out of business in three months. His point is this, is many people can command great organizations, can have great ideas of where they're going, but when it comes to their family, they're out to lunch. And so we're having this men's prayer time to try and help zero in on that thing. Not to guilt you into it, but to say, you know what? It's time to step up and lead. Spiritual maturity requires it. So what is the prayer that we're praying? The prayer is this, Lord, I want to know you so I can faithfully follow you even when it's hard all because of the gospel. Here's the third thing, verse 11. Even when it's hard. I love that this is in here. It's so helpful because in 2013, there's going to be some hard stuff that's going to happen. You can just plan on it. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul gives us here an important word that we need to get and keep into our vocabulary. It is the word endurance, a word that we don't know very well in our modern era. A number of years ago, I read the biographical sermon by John Piper on the life of Pastor Charles Simeon. He lived in the 1800s. He was the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. He was the pastor there for 49 years, and many of them miserable. The people didn't want him there. In fact, uh, the way that they used to build their buildings back then is they would sell pews. And if you bought a pew, you got to the key to the pew, and every pew had a little door. And then you could, you know, put your key in and your family could have its pew. I mean, some of you act like you bought your seats, but you didn't. So... <laughs> Just so you know, we haven't asked you to... That's not a bad idea, no. (laughs) Here's what happened. The people didn't want him there so much that they locked their pews and wouldn't let anyone sit in their seats. So Simeon put in chairs in the aisles, and then the deacons came before a Sunday morning service, took them all out and threw them on the lawn. Can you imagine that? You're showing up to preach and all your chairs you set up the night before in the lawn. People don't want you there. And Simeon endured for so many years. He said this, We ought not mind a little bit of suffering. He minded a lot of suffering. Piper, reflecting on this, writes the following. I need very much this inspiration from another age because I know that I am in great measure a child of my times. And one of the pervasive marks of our times is emotional fragility. I feel it as though it hangs in the air we breathe. We we hurt easily. We pout and mope easily. We break easily. Our marriages break easily. Our faith breaks easily. Our happiness breaks easily. And our commitment to church breaks easily. We are easily disheartened. And it seems we have little capacity for surviving and thriving in the face of criticism and opposition. When historians list the character traits of the last third of the 20th century America, commitment Constancy, tenacity, endurance, patience, resolve, and perseverance will not be on the list. 
The list will begin with an all-consuming interest in self-esteem, and it will be followed by the subheadings of self-assertiveness, self-enhancement, and self-realization. We need help here. When, we, when you are surrounded by a society of emotionally fragile quitters, and when you see a good bit of this ethos in yourself, you need to spend time with people, whether dead or alive, whose lives prove that there is another way to live. You know why we need to talk about endurance? Because I feel it in my own soul, the desire to quit easily. This theme of endurance emerges in verse 11. Paul prays that the church would be given a powerful spiritual strength, and that strength was in accordance with the glorious might of God. Look at verse 11. May you be strengthened. It's not that you're just going to do it on your own. He's asking for God to give them something. So what do you need in 2013? You need God-given endurance. You can't do it on your own. You can't make it. That's why you need a church. That's why you need a small group like Joe mentioned, a place to do community. You need other people to help you for God to work in and through them and to strengthen you. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. This, we don't have time to unpack this glorious might thing, but essentially it means the glorious might connected to the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. In other words, when you're hard-pressed, when you don't think you can make it, when you've got difficulties that are coming your way, and you feel like, man, this is going to crush me, the Bible says, no, it won't crush you, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And instead, you have the resurrected power of the risen Son of God at your disposal so that you can be able to endure all the way to the end. I mean, this is incredibly hopeful. It means that at the end of the day, there is this sense that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. We have this power of the resurrected Jesus. I'm not talking about some sort of strong-willed endurance. We're going to make it. No, you're not. Not unless God empowers you and helps you. Nor am I talking about this silent, stoic, but internally annoyed waiting. You know what I'm talking about? When you're standing in line at McDonald's and the person's like looking and looking and you're like, dude, the menu hasn't changed in like 30 years. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the same, and it's all going to kill you anyways. Just order. <laughs> but you're standing there, and you're like, you know, you're trying to be nice. Like, oh, it's fine. Inside, you're like, would you hurry up, right? And then, and then the person at the cash register goes, may I help? Who's next? And you're like, yeah, that's me, right? I, I'm here. I'm ready. So let's get on with it. So I'm not talking about some sort of silent but annoyed waiting. It means that you endure... But there's nothing uniquely Christian about just enduring. Notice what the text says. For all endurance and patience with... What's the next word? Joy. So, endure patiently with joy. Some of you are like, oh, see, we shouldn't have come to church today. This is not... This, this is why I should have stayed home. Here's why. Because you're called not just to endure. That's one thing. You're, you're called to endure with joy that you can deal with life's difficulties and although they're hard and hard is hard but it's not bad and you find the strength given by christ to be joyful in the midst of patient endurance i mean that's something to pray about church the god i want to know you so I can faithfully follow you even when it's hard. Even when it's hard. Here's the final thing. All because 
of the gospel. I love it. Paul ends on the reason why we should pray this. I mean, look at what it says in, in verse 12 to 14. Giving thanks to the Father. And just listen to these beautiful things. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, your Bible ought to have a little footnote that says, raise hands here, right? (laughs) You ought to read it that way, because that's how he means it. The forgiveness of sins. It means that you have been declared a child of God. God rescued you from the domain of darkness. He transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's through Jesus that you have redemption, even the forgiveness of your sins. And this beautiful reality of the gospel is the reason why you pray, God, I want to know you. Because he has captured you by the beauty of his sovereign love he has covered your sin he's made you righteous he rescued you from the former you and now you are called to know him and to follow him and even when it's hard you root yourself in the beauty of the gospel which is why for some of you here today in your journey of faith the first thing that you need to address think about and deal with is this that you'll never be able to really understand what it means to know God until you first come to faith and put your faith in Jesus. And my prayer is that 2013 will be the year that you would say, this is the year. This is the year that I am going to become a follower of Jesus. Praying for maturity is what we pray for because it is what we love. It is that we have tasted the goodness of God. We have tasted the beauty of what He has done for us. And therefore, we love it. We pray this, church, because we love what God loves. My wife, my wife and I were in premarital counseling. We read a book, and it's called The Five Love Languages by Gary Smalley. How many of you have read this book? It's a pretty good book. Pretty good. It was helpful because it gave like five love languages. I'm sure there's a lot more than five, but these five were helpful. And what was fun was that Sarah and I each talked about what was our love language. And so she gave me her love language. And I was like, Johnny on that love language. I was like, all right, that's a love language. I became knowledgeable of this love language. I started doing those things, doing those things. And then about mm, three, four years into marriage, her love language changed. Right about the time we had kids. That, that was the, the game changer. And so I'm noticing that, that the things I was doing before, they're just not having the same pizzazz. And so I said, hey, what's, you know, what's up with this? And she says, well, my love languages have changed. I was like, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I said, you're not, you're not allowed to be changing love languages. She's like, hey, they're my love languages. I can change them any way, anytime I want. And I was like, not without written notice, you can. That's not allowed. Because I was on that. And so what happened was with more children in the mix, you know, her love language became acts of service. I mean, for her... I mean, she comes home and the kitchen is spotless clean. It's like there's music in the house. I mean, it's like, whoa, you know, it's just so beautiful. So I have become a student. I have a master's degree in kitchen cleanliness. I mean, I know exactly how she likes it and all of this. And and even so, I've learned to delegate this responsibility also to my children, which is also, it was their fault that they changed love languages in the first place. So they got to, you know, they got to got to make it up a little bit and so you know so they're they're doing this cleaning it up and i've learned that that, that's what she loves and guess what guess who loves a clean kitchen now i love a clean kitchen why because my wife loves it 
In the same way, we've got to love what God loves because we love Him. We've got to learn the things that make His heart sing, the things that He yearns for. And you know what He loves? He loves godliness. First Peter says, be holy even as He is holy. He loves holiness and He calls us to be holy. It is a call for us to pray, to see God's face, to say, God, we want to know You so that we can faithfully follow you even when it's hard, all because of this beautiful thing that we call the gospel. So College Park Church in 2013, let us pray and let us pray this week that we would be mature. We would love what God loves. Oh Lord, help us. We, we got a long ways to go on what it means to be mature. And I pray that you would help us in this week to make tangible steps towards following you and what it means to really pray. Lord, I'm asking that this would be a year where we would see people turn their lives from darkness to light by coming to faith in you. That we would see men and women become infectious in their passion to be disciple makers and those who would inspire other people to follow you in deeper and significant ways. And Lord, today we repent of prayerlessness. We say to you, we're sorry that we haven't spent time with you and we need to change that. And so we ask that you'd help us to give something up this week so that we can take one step and pray. Lord, thank you that even though there may be moments that 2013 is hard, that you're still going to be there. And so we're going to keep trusting you, knowing that you're the one who's going to keep us trusting. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I hope to see you at some event this week. Don't forget, you can pick up your uh, prayer week devotional guide as you leave. They're out there in the atrium. If you need someone to pray with you, there's some folks up here today, okay? God bless you, College Park. I love you.